The Fresh Fiction Podcast is brought to you by Ravel and Bethany House Books, who are celebrating the release of Pelican Point by Irene Hannon. After inheriting a crumbling lighthouse, Dr. Ben Garrison is more than ready to get rid of it until he meets a determined Marcy Weber who wants to save the landmark. Can she make him see her point of view? A crumbling lighthouse is not part of the inheritance Army Dr. Ben Garrison expects to claim when he journeys to Hope Harbor. Fresh out of the service, he wants only to unload the Tower of Bricks, decompress from years of treating battlefield trauma, and prepare to launch his civilian career. Hope Harbor Herald editor Marcy Weber has some ideas. She may not be Hope Harbor native, but the small Oregon seaside town has become home, and she's determined to save Pelican Point Landmark. Sparks fly as the two go head-to-head over the fate of the lighthouse, but when they start to cooperate, a different kind of fire ignites. And as they work together, might Hope Harbor heal the hearts of those two romance-weary souls? Best-selling author Irene Hannon invites readers back to their favorite town for a story that will light a beacon of hope within their hearts. Pelican Point is available anywhere books are sold online and in stores. You can also find out more about books from Irene Hannon on FreshFiction.com. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fresh Fiction Podcast, where we break down the fun things we've watched, read, and listened to this week. I'm your new best friend, Gwen Reyes, and today I am talking all about the royal wedding. You guys, um, did you watch it on Saturday? I did. I got up at 3.50 in the morning, central time. I'm not a crazy person who lives on the East Coast. Um, And I watched the whole thing. Very, very long. Very, very worth it. It was so great. I'm still obsessed, and I cannot wait to dig in. Okay, so let's start from the very beginning. Uh, Not like the very, very beginning, but we can just go back to November when it was announced by um, Kensington Palace that Prince Harry would be marrying the American actress Meghan Markle. Um, Many of you know by this point, you probably, you guys know a lot about Meghan Markle, but back in in November, she wasn't as well known um, to people beyond USA watchers who saw her on the very, very popular series Suits, where she had been an original actor, she'd been an original character since the beginning. She is actually no longer on the show. She had to um, quit when she decided to marry a prince. I mean, life is really hard. I understand this. Uh, But... I think it was very well worth it for her because she ended up falling in love with Prince Harry, like all of us in this world, um, announcing their engagement back in November. And um, I feel a very tight kinship with Miss Markle because I too got engaged at the end of last year um, at Christmas time. So it's really kind of cool to see uh, a, a woman in a kindred spirit in the same situation as me, except for she's marrying a prince. And I am marrying also a prince, but just not of royal blood or nobility. Um, but, you know, it was really great, and congratulations to Megan. So, but that is the engagement. Now we can talk a lot about the actual wedding, which took place on May 19th. If you were a royal watcher, you probably followed a lot of the details. I did. I got really obsessed, just as I was obsessed with Kate Middleton and Prince Her- Prince William, excuse me, uh, during their engagement back in 2011. I was very, very into Meghan Markle and Prince Harry's engagement as well, following all of the announcements about their elderberry flower 
a reception um, cake that they were going to be having, all the different receptions they were having. Were they going to do it at um, in London? They ended up doing it in Windsor at the uh, Windsor Castle, which is actually the Queen's favorite castle. So it was really cool and a very kindred or a really sweet moment for Harry and Meghan to be able to share something that is so special to him and his family. And now that she's part of the family, that uh, she gets to be a part of that. And now that they are married, if we fast forward to May 19th, which was last Saturday, they just had the sweetest, most beautiful, most shocking wedding. Because, you know, if you want, if you remember with Princess Diana, which I do not remember, I didn't watch it live, but uh, with William and Kate, it was a very traditional wedding. It was very long, and, and Westminster Abbey had an incredibly long um, gallery and choir for them to walk through. But here at Windsor Castle and St. George's Cathedral, specifically it was a lot smaller they only had 600 people in attendance versus the nearly 1500 people i think for kate and william's wedding this was a much smaller affair uh, but there were also tons and tons and tons of celebrities as you might imagine that attended this of course there were tons of obe that would be um british of the uh official british empire those who have been knighted um, who also share that we're friends with the Queen and friends with Harry. But, of course, when you have a celebrity as your new wife, she's got a lot of famous friends that will be coming and making appearances and, of course, Instagramming, which was so great to get a little bit behind the scenes so you really felt like you were involved. Um, but some of, the highlight author, some of the highlight stars that were in attendance, of course, George Clooney and Amal Clooney, um, nobody really knows why they were invited because there's really no history of George and Harry working together with their philanthropic needs or, or um, Amal as well. Uh, maybe Amal and Megan met sometime at the UN, but it's really doubtful because Megan's only spoken at the UN one time. But there, you know, it could also just be nice having them. There was also rumors that because of um, a sponsorship that possibly George was invited because his tequila company was sponsoring the bar for the evening reception. But you know, that's just speculation. I don't really know. Um, I just know that they were there and they made a really good TV to watch because it's really fun to fa see famous people. Also there, we saw Oprah, America's queen, if we can. She was wonderful and great. And she actually got to sit in the good seats because as we'll get to, there were uh, cheap seats with televisions <laughs> like the rest of us and uh, the really intimate choir seats that were very coveted and got to sit near the queen. Also joining Oprah was Serena Williams and her husband, Alexis Ohana, who is, uh, some of you might know, the original co-founder of Reddit, and they got married last year, and Serena and Megan are very, very close friends, so it was really cool to see Serena there, and she did a lot of Instagram stories pre prior to the wedding, so you got a little bit of the behind the scenes of her getting ready, which was really neat. Also, there was Abigail Spencer, who was a co-star with with Megan on Suits, but then the rest of the Suits actors, because there was a ton of them, they actually sat out in the, the gallery section where they didn't really have really good seats. They couldn't really see anything. I would have been really frustrated. I mean, it's cool to be able to say like, yeah, I went to the royal wedding, but then when you actually get there, you can't see anything. That must have been really frustrating. But also out there um, in the cheap seats was Idris Elba, James Corden, who uh, rumor has it ended up being the host for the evening reception that night. 
that was sponsored or that was uh, put on by Prince Charles, or yeah, Prince Charles, yes, not King Charles, yeah, Prince Charles. Um, and there was only 200 people at that one versus the 600 people who got to go to the wedding and the afternoon reception where there was lunch served and dessert. So it wasn't like they were had to sit there, get there super early, like three or four hours before everybody else. Oprah was like the first person there. I was incredibly impressed by that. Um, but that was about it. And then we had the Suits actors, Idris Elba, um, Victoria Beckham and David Beckham were there. Elton John ended up coming and he actually sang four songs at the reception in the evening as well. But it was just a really fun, star-filled evening or afternoon and the queen showed up and she looked like a highlighter. And uh, yeah, but you know, she's always a bold, bold costume wear. So good for the queen. Um, also kind of interesting was the fact that Harry invited two of his very well-known exes to this wedding. That included Cressida uh, Bonus and Chelsea Davey. Chelsea Davey was actually photographed and caught on film looking a little forlorn and a little lost in thought. Um, and there's, of course, a little bit of speculation that she's still kind of reeling from the fact that Harry has moved on. But like all of the celebrity gossip, there's you just take it with a grain of salt and just read it for funsies. Cressida Bonus was uh, beautiful. She looked kind of like a tapestry, but very rainbow-colored tapestry. But she was really, it was really cool to see that Harry extended an invitation to both of them. Rumor is that they neither of them were invited to the evening reception, but they both made it to the daytime reception and the wedding ceremony. Um, so also, guys, like we gotta talk about this dress. I really loved the dress, and I seem to be on a minority train with that because a lot of people thought it was very ill-fitted, it was a little heavy, um, very simple, but Megan's a very simple person and she's always had just very simple, classic taste that photographs incredibly well because it's never going to look dated, it's always going to look very um, just beautiful and timeless. And I think that this dress is gonna also stand the test of time in that way. She did have an incredibly long veil that was actually longer than the train of her dress. Um, and it featured 53 flowers from each of the 53 commonwealths of England, as well as the, uh, the um, state flower of California. So that was a really nice touch and it was actually quite stunning, um, but I just thought it was a little extra, a little too much. But it was really cool to also see the um, bridesmaids, which were just children, little flower girls, and the uh, page boys, who included um, Prince George, the youngest, or the oldest of the um, Prince William and Kate Middleton's children of the, of the uh, Cambridges, that's what their names are. They, he was one of the page boys, as was his little sister Charlotte. She was a flower girl, or as they like to call them, bridesmaids. And um, Megan's godsons, were there was a twin set of twins of them they were the ones that carried her train and her veil in for her and they were so cute so uh that was really fun and i also just loved seeing their love and their romance and just how much they adored each other and their sweet giggles and like i said i'm planning my wedding right now so i had a lot of moments of just being like oh i can't wait to do that myself um there were also some very fiery moments with uh pastor michael who made a big splash, uh, brought a lot of American into this very stuffy wedding, but it was really fun to watch that. He did like a 16-minute sermon that was very fiery, very uplifting, 
Um, the British royals that were there looked a little confused, but that was also kind of fun to watch. So it was just really kind of cool to get to stay home, wash it on my couch with my, uh, in my pajamas and my cup of tea. Cause I had to have a cup of tea while you're watching the, while you're watching the royal wedding and just pretend for a little while that you're there. Um, I just, I had such a good time watching it and I absolutely loved it. And I am sad that this is our last one for quite some time. Cause we probably won't get another royal wedding on this, of this magnitude. Um, until one of the Cambridges are grown up and they get their own weddings. And so we just have, you know, as Americans, we don't really have any sort of personal connection to the British royals anymore, but we all remember Harry and William after their mom's, de after their mom's death, and, and it's really nice to see the two of them have found love and are continuing to make families and to honor Diana's legacy. Also, speaking of the royal wedding, I enjoyed the Lifetime movie last week, Harry and Meghan, A Royal Romance. It was so sweet and so cute. And um, very, just, I was incredibly blown away by the actress that played Meghan Markle because she just, uh, she just stole the show. She was so charming and just so good. And her name is uh, Parisa Fitzhenley. And she was casted, she was cast very quickly for this role. They actually wrote the script in two weeks. They found her and her on-screen love interest played by Murray Fraser, who is actually Scottish and not British. The two of them had really great chemistry and it starts with their meeting. Um, the two of them kind of having a, a, a very, a start started off as a very crappy first date, but turned out that they fell in love and she gave him a little shit and he gave it back to her, so it was kind of fun to watch the two of them. And even if it's not accurate, even if it's nothing like it, to be able to have a really well-acted and performed film that gave us a little insights and, back, and backstage look at these two falling in love, it was just, it was really great. And you can actually catch that on uh, on demand for Lifetime. They'll probably be re-airing it as well, but I watched it on On Demand. Um, and that worked out just fine. And probably in a few months, it'll be available on a streaming service as well. So that's pretty much it for me. I've been all royal wedding all the time. There's also a bunch of royal wedding books that you can get really into. I thoroughly enjoyed um, Tracy Wolf's Royal Treatment, which had a very similar story about a bachelor, former, former next in line, who's actually demoted after he's kidnapped by um, some terrorists and they can't trust him so they actually say nope we're gonna cast we're gonna make your your twin brother the new first in line and you have been thrown out so this man who has been sort of trained for his whole life to be king now doesn't really have a purpose and falls in love uh, falls in love with the lifestyle of partying but it's not really not for him either and meets a, a woman who changes his life and so it's a really good romance just to keep with that romance in the air love eye emoji it's just, there's lots of really good stuff out there for you to check out. So that's Tracy Wolf's Royal Treatment. Um, well, so let's get to the interviews, right? Like, that's what you guys came here for, not just to hear me blathering on about the royal wedding. Uh, today's episode, I am going to be chatting with Laura France, the author of The Lace Maker. Uh, we had a really nice chat about the Revolutionary War, um, the research that she does, and Colonial Williamsburg, which I don't know if you guys have had a chance to go there, but I have only been there to see the uh, ginormous um, shop, <laughs> the, 
the souvenir shop, which is really funny, but we went one day when they were closed and the only thing open was the uh, souvenir shop. So as we walked through. Um, other than that, if you love what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the Fresh Fiction Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or any other of your favorite podcast apps. You can also follow me personally on Twitter and Instagram using at Real Vixen. Um, but up, coming up next, I'm going to be talking to Laura France, and I hope you stick around after this short break. Very excited to talk to you about The Lace Maker. Oh, yes. I was so excited. It um, landed on your beautiful site and then within your uh, box there. I Mm -hmm. was so tickled when my publisher told me about that. So thank you. Of course. It's our pleasure. Well, um, Laura, so we can just get started. Um, Can you tell tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay. I'm I'm born and bred in Kentucky, and uh, many of my stories are set here. I love writing about um, the settlers who came in after Daniel Boone because my family, uh, their history uh, was a part of that. And I veer off the frontier sometimes to do more genteel books and more genteel settings like The Lace Maker and Colonial Williamsburg and Lace Making are just fascinating to me, and um, writing is my passion, I guess you would say. I've been doing it since I was seven years old. Oh, wow. Do you remember what your first story was about? You know, my mom said it was about ships. She came into my dad's office, and I had these, like, the encyclopedia laid out and a couple other books, and I guess it's it's just inbred, you know, if you start that early. Mm -hmm. My first little uh, novella I wrote at age 12 and it was after I went to the historic site Old Sturbridge Village in Massachusetts and I wrote a story about a girl who was an ice skater and I still have that actually. Really? Yeah and I in my little childish print I even illustrated the book and and only a mother could love it but (laughs) it's a fond memory and it got it kind of was my start I guess. That's amazing was it did you um find it challenging to write at 12 years old? You know, I do remember um, I compiled the story and did the illustrations and then put it in a little folder like we had back then with kind of the little clips. And it, it, I remember going over the story several times because when you write it out by hand at that age, you make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I wanted it to be flawless. So I kept <laughs> copying it and copying it so I didn't have any little places that were scribbled out. I, it was a challenge, and I don't know if I just relied on the, what I saw in the village when we visited as a family or if I actually took, like, a little guidebook home of the history and then incorporated it in the story. Those details are kind of fuzzy. But I loved that story, and that sparked my love for historical fiction. Yeah. And that. Uh, and I never left me. I'm still doing it, like, 40 years later. Oh, my goodness. That's so funny. So did you, were you one of those lucky writers that got to be a writer from college out, or did you have uh, other career careers that you, you know, I Oh, I did everything. And I think, looking back, I was like, why did I not publish anything until I was, like, 40? But <laughs> I, I didn't think I ever would. I was a, a, actually a high school teacher. English teacher. I was um, a social worker. I was a visiting innkeeper at a bed and breakfast for vacationing owners. I worked in the national parks. Wow. So I, I did a lot. Of, I was even a waitress because I'm a total bona fide foodie. So I did all of that. And I guess sometimes I 
think, oh, I'm dismayed. I didn't write. Well, I was always writing, but that I didn't publish sooner. Because mm-hmm. all these talented new authors are coming on the scene now, and they're much younger than I am. But I think, well, maybe that enriched my writing all those experiences. Absolutely. Enrich your writing and probably enrich your soul, too, just to kind of have all those different experiences. Well said. I, I soul enrichment. I agree. Thank <laughs> you. That's so cool. So you, uh, what's been interesting, though, is that you have only written historical romance, correct? That's correct. And I confess, I've got a couple of contemporary novels going right now, but I rarely read contemporary. Really? You know, but I don't like to read historicals much when I'm writing because I think it kind of, it messes with my voice in a way. Mm -hmm. I tend to sometimes, if I want to read, lately I just grab a contemporary novel and there's some really good ones out there. And I kind of keep my voice clean that way. It's hard to describe, but I've always loved historicals. I've I get the most out of historicals, and I could never write a contemporary either. Oh wow, that's interesting. So, um, so just jumping back to the lace maker, since that's your newest one, um, and you said that you took this out of Kentucky because normally your your books take place in your in you know your home state. So, what was it about Colonial Williamsburg that kind of piqued your interest? Well, you know, I've always loved Colonial Williamsburg as as a historic site. I've been to Scotland in different places and have traveled extensively, but there's something about Colonial Williamsburg, maybe it's because it was the, you know, all caught up, those historical fireworks, the birth of our country, Mm -hmm. a lot of the movers and shakers back then were Virginians, and Colonial Williamsburg was kind of a hotbed. It wasn't just Boston and other places. Um, So I think there's so much rich history in Colonial Williamsburg I've just, and I have not read, there was a book that came out like 50 years ago, a fictional work set in Colonial Williamsburg by Ellsworth Thane. That's a hard name to remember. It's mm-hmm. called Dawn's Early Light. And after reading that book, and then my boys got me an American Girl doll, that Felicity that basically set in Williamsburg, and... um I, it just kind of kindled my imagination, and I thought, oh, I'm just going to go veer off the frontier and write a story in this very um, genteel setting, but actually there was so much historical fireworks, as I say, when the novel takes place, and um, at the start of the Revolutionary War, that it was not as genteel as it <laughs> might have been. There was a lot at play. But it was a wonderful setting, and a lot of people, I think, can identify with it because they've been there. Yeah, absolutely. And it, that's what I was, I was thinking, too, is that what's great about Colonial Williamsburg is, one, it's a place that people can still go and kind of right. touch history, and it's something that's so relatable for people. Exactly. Well said. You know, it, it grieved me the last time I was there. Um, the docents are the, you know, the reenactors and people on staff said that the attendance is, is low and, and people have lost interest in American history, especially our younger generation. So I try, um, as a, as a, a midlifer, I guess you'd say, to keep that history alive, to make it interesting maybe to younger people. Mm-hmm. And so maybe if my books, you know, do that, that's, I'm a happy author. 
Yeah, I, I thought that that was interesting that you mentioned that in your bio, is that writing writing historical romance and writing the story, is, it's very important for you to keep history alive. And um, why do you think it's important to keep history alive, for, especially for younger readers? Well, I think you, it's, you know, a lot of those founding fathers embody these honorable, you know, my hero, hero in this book is named Noble, and, and there was a reason for that. He he was kind of the essence of all that a lot of those founding fathers had, you know, the mm-hmm. strength and the nobleness of character, you know, the courage, the fighting spirit, the love of liberty. I think um, we as Americans, the younger generation, are have kind of lost touch with that. Uh, I've heard statistics that a lot of the kids now don't even know what our, who our first president was. I know, isn't and that some so of depressing? That, you know, it's so sad to me. And I think if you lose your uh, that bedrock of, of knowledge about it, you know, even, you know, they're teaching U.S. history, I guess, American history, but kids are just not, maybe they need to spice it up with historical novels. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Some people you do use my books in the classroom, believe it or not. Oh, that's and so cool. Yeah, so I'm thrilled about that. So I think maybe we need to make history more interesting, more relatable. I think, and, and I think that's what historical yeah. fiction does such a great job of, is giving people the human connection and the humanity exactly. of something, you know? Yeah, exactly. That, that's exactly how I feel about kind of bridging the past with the present, you know, make it relatable, give them, you know, give these kids something to admire or something that they can strive to, you know, to emulate, you know, I think we have a generation in crisis, that's another story, but I just, I don't know, my, one of my job is to bring history to life and make it interesting and as relatable as possible even 200 years later. Absolutely. And the Revolutionary War, it's always been one of my favorite wars, um, just because oh, I think it's good. its everything that's America, in my opinion. Like, it's just... Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I don't know a lot about the Civil War. I mean, it was a terribly tumultuous time, but that that found you know it didn't found our country mm-hmm. the, like the revolution did and and like you said it's just it embodies all that America was and came to be and I mean they wore cool pants <laughs> yeah oh yeah exactly <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and it's cool too with like with stuff like Hamilton um, kind of coming into the pop culture I think that a lot of people are hopefully and you know more books too because I for a very long time there wasn't a lot there weren't a lot of historical novels about the Revolutionary War it was you know you got some you stuff or you got like right. World War Two. yes you know I'm glad you, you brought that up the, the Revolutionary War period of the 18th century is gaining traction as publishers say now since my debut novel was released in 2009. You're seeing more and more uh, writers in the 18th century and around the American Revolutionary Time period, both pub- traditionally published in, and indie authors. So I'm heartened, like you say, with Hamilton coming out, and then there's some general market authors that are really big that are, you know, have come out with books about Ham- Hamilton, fictionalized accounts. Mm-hmm. And I think it 
it is an overlooked time period. I, I know my editor says the sweet spot for historicals is about 1870, believe it or not. Wow, interesting. And the, the, yeah, the colonial period has kind of been overlooked, but I think that's changing, thankfully. Yeah. So um, one of the – so she's – your main character, she's a lace maker. Um, why was what what was important about lace making in this time period? Well, it was considered a highly um, it was a hot commodity, I guess you'd say. Everybody from no matter what social strata you were or level of society you were wanted lace. It it adorned a lot of gowns. It was extremely beautiful. It was worked by women who. You know, who actually, the women who sold the lace were, you know, your over, traditionally overworked women, you know, tradeswomen. And uh, lace fetched a pretty, pretty good price. But women of the gentry, like my Lady Elizabeth, as the story starts, um, was able to do lace. It wasn't just, you know, relegated to the common women. Mm-hmm. Highborn women did it. Handwork was considered an essential part of a woman's kind of repertoire, and what she, you know, brought to a marriage and and just you know what she brought to society, you know, as the backdrop. There, lace was a was a highly prized skill. Everybody wanted it. It was even adorned men's clothes. So I've not read a book about lace making. Mm-hmm. George Washington was a huge fan of lace and also Martha. And so I thought, why not give a heroine that skill? Mm-hmm. And so I tried, although you have to be careful because you don't want to turn it into a nonfiction work. Sure. I wish I could have included more details. I only put about 10% of what I had learned in the book because of that. But hopefully enough to maybe intrigue readers so that they can read more about it. Was the 10% the most interesting parts of lace making that you found, or were they the most vital parts? Well, I think both. You know, there's some things like some of the poor women made lace, but during the Revolutionary War, the pins they needed to do their bobbin lace were in short supply, so they would use fish bones. Oh, wow. So I, yeah, fascinating, you know, and that's such an archaic obscure facts, but I threw it in the book because I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. And some, you know, some, uh, it, just you know, little things I thought that stood out to me as I researched. But you have to be aware of that information dump. Yeah. And I hope I didn't err on the side of too scanty details. I haven't heard any readers complain about that yet. Well, that's so good. <laughs> it was a nice balance, I know, but you can't please everybody, but I tried. That is, you know, that's the that's the hardest thing I think about sharing your works with other people is is understanding that you you can't please everybody, but everybody finds something good in something. I would hope so. You know, I never diss a book because I know there are people who love books that I'm not particularly fond of. Right. And I would never want to take away from their enjoyment. Absolutely. Well, speaking of books, and you've already kind of mentioned that you've been in a little bit of a, um, because I guess you're, are you working on your next book right now? So that's why you're reading Contemporary? Uh, Yeah, I'm actually always about three books ahead of readers. I'm working, let's see, The Lifemaker and then I've turned in a Scottish novel um, recently, and now I'm, yeah, that comes out next January, and they just titled it. It's called The Bound Heart. It's about indentured servants. Oh, wow. uh, it's actually a, a laird in a castle, and uh, his beekeeping 
uh, still room uh, mistress of the castle, not you know mistress as as opposed to you know they called like the still room mistress and just you know mistress of the manor, but they are embroiled in a, um, a a crime actually and are end up coming to America as indentured servants. So that releases next January, and I'm actually halfway through a frontier novel that releases the year after that. Wow. So we're looking out now into 2020. Oh, my goodness. About three books ahead of you. So when we're talking about The Race Maker, which is wonderful because it just released, Mm -hmm. I'm still way ahead of readers. Yeah. And it's sometimes hard to even remember things about (laughs) that book because I'm three books ahead of you. Right. I was going to say, because you're, you know, in this, on that time frame, you would have, you would have written this book two years ago. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I just have, you know, moved on now to the another set of characters and then yet another set of characters. So it's interesting to try to keep that lace maker love alive and those, all those details straight. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> but I do love the book, and it was a joy to write. That's And awesome. I hope a joy to read for readers. Well, I'm already excited about your Scottish book because I went with my fiance. We went on a family trip to Scotland back oh, in yes, August, yes. and so it was oh, amazing. So it's fresh for you. It is very fresh for me. I still see like the green hills oh, and and the halt or oh, the the heather, yes. and I just want to go back right oh, now. Oh, <laughs> and you can't, you went at a beautiful time. You know, it's probably warm enough. You didn't need a sweater the whole time. And I, yeah, it was it was beautiful. I know. Well, first trip, but not the last, hopefully. Right? Oh, yes, for sure. It will definitely yeah. be oh. one of many, I hope. <laughs> oh, great. Well, look for the Bound Heart releasing January of uh, 2019. Oh, my gosh. That's perfect. I cannot wait. It'll be a nice remembrance for, for my trip from yeah, last year. For your, yeah, cover arts underway. They even uh, ordered a real plaid or tartan from Scotland for the heroine. Oh, fantastic. Uh, Yeah, and they found a red-headed model that's just absolutely stunning. Yeah. And she's going to, they're going to do the cover sheet thing once they get the Scottish uh, tire sent over. So I'm excited. That's exciting. Because it's going to be hard to to top the lace maker. It has a beautiful cover. Oh, I know. You know, I hate to say it because I, there are covers that I love of mine and others I'm not real crazy about. Because, you know, it's just, it's whatever they, my publisher feels would would suit readers the best. Mm. It's not always what I have in mind. But the Lifesaker, I love it because it's an actual gown in a museum collection worn by a woman of that era, oh, wow. 18th century. So it actually is a gown that exists and is on um, display. Do you know which so, museum it's at? It is. It's the University of, or excuse me, it's the museum of in Indianapolis, the Indianapolis Museum of Art. Oh. So it, they don't have it currently on display, but it rotates, and they do bring it out. And I just think it's the most stunning blue, and that lace sleeve is just amazing. Mm-hmm. So they contacted the museum, and they uh, purchased the rights to use that for the cover. Oh, that's, and, oh, that's so neat. Real. Yeah, so it's really an authentic uh, cover with authentic lace from a uh, lace maker back then. 
That's so great. Well, Laura, one of my last questions for you, um, what we like to do at the Fresh Fiction Podcast is we're really interested in knowing um, what you're reading, what you're watching, and what you're listening to. If there's anything that you've been kind of excited to talk about and, sh- and to recommend to listeners, that would be really awesome. Oh, wow. Well, you know, there's so many books out there. I was saying to a friend the other day and fellow author, I think... 2018 has started off with just an incredible bang. I have to give a shout out to my friend uh, Joycelyn Green. She's written about a lace maker mm-hmm. in a refuge assured, and you all have her up on your site on the, on the sidebar. She has a cover that's just beautiful with a lace maker on it's very it. Very similar. <laughs> yeah, very similar, right? More of the woman on her cover, but a refuge assured by her. Lori Benton uh, writes Frontier Fiction. She's another fabulous author. Joanne Bischoff, I love. She uh, goes traditional and indie uh, markets. And I do read in the general market uh, some, but right now I don't have a title that stands out to me. But I am watching Victoria, and I guess I missed... I, I've got to catch up. I missed the grand season finale on Sunday night. Oh, no. And I love Cold Arc. Hmm. So, uh, although the, it's, Cold Arc's a little bit, you know, love to hate love to hate those characters. Some of them make very poor decisions. Yes. And you want to throw something at the telly, as they say. But that's what I'm watching and reading. And, oh, as far as uh, contemporary novels right now, Carla Lariano's The Saturday Night Supper Club. Oh, okay, yeah, I've heard um, of that one. Yeah, and I, I'm a foodie, so that just intrigues me. She has that beautiful cover with that beautiful plate of, of uh, cuisine. So that kind of wraps it up when I'm reading and watching. Oh, that's great. Well, that sounds awesome. It gave me a long list. I was taking notes because, I, yeah, I loved uh, Jocelyn Green's book. We just talked to her today on our um, – oh, we had a Twitter good. chat with her. So it was really uh, cool. And I'll be talking to her in a couple of weeks. Oh, good. All right. Tell her hi for me. I will. I'll be like, you guys have a little bookend because I always see yeah, your covers. And I'm like, they're so complimentary of each other. Exactly. I know when we found out about our twin – Race-making heroines, we kind of brainstormed and did some cross-promos, so it's fun to talk about her. She's an excellent author. Oh, that's fantastic. Cool. Well, um, where can readers find more information about you? Um, at larfrance.net. I had a new website designed uh, just a few months ago, and I love, love the uh, look of it. And oh, cool. It's kind of my web home, and I, I do respond to every comment and every email, so if readers want to write me and say hello or have questions about a novel or or whatever I'm always uh, available to do that and I do it in a timely manner so please please come over and say hi awesome well I'm sure they will well Laura thank you so much and I hope you have a great rest of your uh, Tuesday okay Gwen thank you you've been just delightful uh, happy reading yes happy reading thank you so much okay thanks bye bye I'd like to extend my thanks again to Laura France for joining me today. You can find The Lace Maker anywhere books are sold. Thank you also to Ravel and Bethany House for their continued support of the podcast. Make sure you stop by freshfiction.com to find out more about Irene Hannon's Pelican Point, which is available now. 
Um, I'm gonna say this every single time, but just so you know, we're still growing. So please help us out by rating the podcast, leaving a comment, or even just sharing it on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Fresh Fiction, Instagram as Fresh Fiction, and on Facebook also as Fresh Fiction. Um, you always can find us on Fresh Fiction, so that's really great. And also just check out freshfiction.com. I'll be back next week with uh, something new to watch, read, and listen to.